How many of you remember the, uh, and this is a retro thing, Bob Newhart show? Anybody Bob Newhart fans? All right. Um, Bob Newhart show. One of the things you will have to do when you get home this afternoon is you need to go on and Google and look on YouTube the Bob Newhart. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you in a second what it is. I don't want to give away my, it's a, it's a clip that I think is really funny. Here's what happens in the clip. He's sitting across the desk from some woman. He's, he was, Bob Newhart was a psychiatrist, played one on TV, not a real one, played one on TV. Kind of funny, dry sense of humor. Sitting across from a woman who comes into his office and she says, well, hello, Dr. Newhart. And she says, hey, how much do you charge? And he goes, well, first five minutes is $20. And after that, it's like $10 every 10 minutes. She goes, why do you, he, why do you just charge for, five, for the first five minutes? Well, I find that most often my patients are helped in the first five minutes. And she looks at him really weird. And, and then he says, what's your problem? And he's sitting on the desk, and she's on the other side of the desk. And he goes, well, I have this irrational fear that I'm going to be buried alive someday. Somebody's going to bury me alive. He's like, uh-huh. He goes, I don't know why it is. I just, it controls everything I do. I have this irrational fear that I'm going to be buried alive. And he's like, okay, now, <clears throat> I'm going to say two words to you right now. and I want, They're really, really important words. Goes, Should I write them down? No, no, I think you'll remember them. Two words, and I think this will really help you. She goes, okay. And he goes, stop it. <laughs> She's like, what? Stop it. She's like, stop, stop. Stop thinking about that. Well, I know, but I... I, it's been for a whole my life. I can't get over this fear. I'm going to be buried alive. And he's like, stop it, stop it, stop it. All right. Uh, Bob Newhart, stop it therapy. Google that and you'll f- see it. And then, and then she's like, well, this is why I think most of, my problems, most of my patients' problems are solved in five minutes. It's only been three and a half minutes. So you've got a minute and a half. What else do you want to say? She's like, well, I'm just appalled at what you're... I'm just... And he, he's getting really frustrated. And then he says, okay, now I have seven words for you to say. You may want to write these down. Stop it or I'll bury you alive. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know but, but let's think about it. Sometimes the mental notes we take or the therapy we get from other Christians sometimes when we struggle with certain issues, emotional issues, problems, anxieties, fears, sometimes we think the solution is stop it. Just stop that anxiety issue. Just stop that eating disorder issue. Just stop your addiction. Just stop it. How many of you, don't raise your hands, how many of you has that ever worked for? If somebody says to you, stop it, just stop what you're doing. Stop sinning. Stop this, you know, stop waking up in the middle of the night with anxiety. Stop feeling sad for yourself. Just stop it. It doesn't work, does it? It hasn't worked in my life. But yet we still have these times in our lives where we have this, and I'm doing this, like this emotional Something's going on inside of us. Our stomach's being turned with anxiety or fear or all kinds of other stuff going on, and we don't know what to do with that. And it affects how we live our lives throughout the day. It affects our sleep at night. It affects how we react to people and other things because we have this turmoil going on inside of us. And we know as Christians we, shouldn't, we should be kind of peaceful, joyful people, so we feel bad and guilty about this turmoil inside of us, this emotional hurricane happening, but we don't know what to do with it. And whenever, whenever another Christian says to us, well, just stop it, just, you know, stop it. They don't say those words, but in so many words. All that does is heap on guilt. It heaps guilt onto your already emotional turmoil problem, and it's like, well, this is really great. One of the things we're going to look at, what we, the last couple of weeks, go to the next slide. We've been looking at Jesus talking to his disciples 
the night he was betrayed. All right? For five straight chapters, John, who was there, has recorded what was going on in these conversations Jesus had with his disciples. You know, the Last Supper and things like and And it's, it's not just Jesus giving his kind of farewell address. He's preparing these people. He's training these men for what's going to come down the pike. He's really training them for a revolution. He's training them, you've got to have these kind of tools, so to speak, if you're going to extend what I've been doing and help other people see how much God loves them and extend what God's influences can be. And they, they didn't know Jesus was going to get arrested and die that night, but he was giving them this really powerful kind of summary moments. Last or Two weeks ago, one of the phrases we, we uh, started on was the start of the whole scene. They're eating dinner. It's a Passover meal, kind of holiday celebration. And it says the devil already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. And we talked about that week how that, that what Satan does in this case, it's kind of it's, he threw a thought into Judas. He threw something into Judas, threw th- thoughts into him that got him to act upon reality that was not reality and do something really evil. And we talked about the fact that Satan, that's what Satan loves to do. He loves to throw false thoughts into our heads, like your wife doesn't love you, your kids are a jerk, or whatever, and you start acting on those false beliefs because Satan knows how to whisper and get you to think things. The, 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 the night goes on, and remember this is the night where Jesus, he washes his disciples' feet. And it was one of those radical kind of things to do because... The only people that wash feet in the Jewish culture are the lowest of slaves because nobody really has to demean themselves like that. So Jesus, in this, in this night before he's going to die, tells the disciples, this is what leadership looks like. This is the kind of people you have to be. If you're going to be a great person, you've got to be a servant. If you're going to be a leader, you've got to be the last. And it totally blows them away. And he says, if, since I've washed your feet, and I'm your teacher, I'm your leader, I'm your Lord. I, I'm doing that, then you need to do that to each other. You need to learn how to serve each other, your, your spouse, your kids, strangers, neighbors, enemies, people you don't like. You need to figure out, if you're going to lead people, you've got to learn how to take the role of a servant toward people. So he washes their feet. So, you know, there's 12, 13 kind of Jesus sitting around this oblong table, kind of this religious holiday environment. You know, they've had wine, they've had lamb, they've had this unleavened bread because they're remembering the story of the Exodus, how God set people free. Jesus washes their feet, sits back down at the table. They're kind of still kind of, you know, kind of stunned. And then here's here's where the story picks up. Next line. Now, Jesus was deeply troubled. So he just got done getting his, you know, getting his robe back on. His hands are probably still a little wet, towels wet, whatever he used. Disciples' feet are really, really clean at this point. It says, Jesus was deeply troubled, and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you are going to betray me. I mean, he drops a bombshell on these guys. They, they had no idea that there was one among them that was going to betray Jesus. That's a bombshell. One of you are going to betray me. Disciples looked at each other, wondering who he could mean. The disciple Jesus loved, which was John. He's talking about himself. Sitting next to Jesus, he leaned over, and he, because Peter probably said, John, John, ask him who it is. And who's he talking about? And so John says, Jesus, who are you talking about? And we're not going to finish the story, but that, that, of course, we know that Judas is the guy. They didn't know that. They didn't get it. 
Here's the phrase I want to look at from this passage alone here. One line. Jesus was deeply troubled. Jesus was deeply troubled, all right? Sounds like a pretty deep emotional experience he was having. Couldn't somebody just tell him to stop it? I mean, Jesus, I mean, he is God, the perfect man, but also God. He had emotional turmoil? Jesus was deeply troubled. What, what do we do with that? And what does it mean to be deep, I'm deeply troubled? Now, think about it for a second. Let's just stop for a second. The phrase here kind of implies kind of emotional confusion. Emotional shock is another one somebody defined it. Um, think about times where you may have been deeply troubled. Um, your spouse tells you they want a divorce. You find out you didn't get into the school you wanted to get into. You find out the tumor could be cancerous. You find out you lost your job. You find out someone you really, really loved died in a tragic accident. You find out the pregnancy test was negative again. You find out he wants to break up with you. You find out the car repair is going to cost $1,000, and you got nothing in the bank. When those events happen in our lives, what does it feel like? I mean, not, not just describe, what does it feel like? I mean, I know for me, you kind of get this knot in your stomach. You kind of get almost short-winded, kind of like somebody's blocking oxygen. You wake up in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep because you're just, you, you, you can't, you have this emotional turmoil that feels almost savage. And it's like this hurricane inside of you that you can't seem to shut down. Every one of us, we, you, some of you know in deep, deep ways what deeply troubled means. And you felt it. You, you felt it in your body. It's like you kind of walk around life and nothing matters. You know, who, who cares if you're hungry? You're not even hungry for lunch. And who cares if, you know, I even won the basketball game last night because something huge has happened and your emotions are a mess. All right? That's what Jesus was feeling right here. The perfect man, the one who was from God and totally aligned with God, he was deeply troubled. Here's some other words that are used. Agitated, stirred up, unsettled, disturbed, alarmed, shook up, terrified, overwhelmed. I mean, he wasn't just a little bit ticked off. He was, so Jesus had a pit in his stomach. He probably felt a little short of breath. He was overwhelmed. And if Jesus felt that way, we feel that way. What do you do with that? How do, if we're supposed to be the ones leading this revolution and changing the community of Bloomington and changing our marriages and change, how do you deal with it when you get those things in life happen that knock you off balance and you're kind of like, whoa. Remember those, again, this is the retro thing. Remember those punching bags that you would punch and they'd fall on the ground and they'd snap back up again? Those of you who are 50 and older, yeah, yeah. The rest of you are like, what are you talking about? You know? But what happens when you get knocked off Knocked off your horse, so to speak. How do you get back on? Go to the next slide here. 
couple assumptions that we're going to make here. Assumption number one, you are emotional. God made you with emotions. Emotions didn't happen after the fall. Emotions were not a result of sin. God made you as an emotional being. He made you that way. He made you to, be ang- he made you to experience anger, deep sadness, grief, joy, laughter. That's how God made you. Those are not problems, all right? Second assumption is that Jesus is emotional. Jesus was the most, most emotionally healthy being that ever walked on this earth. And he was emotional. He is emotional. Sometimes when we say that in our culture today, it's kind of a negative, like, wow, he's, he's really kind of emotional. That's usually a negative connotation, like he wears his emotions all over his sleeve or whatever we say about that. But Jesus was highly emotional. I mean, you read the Gospels and there's anger, there's joy, there's sadness, and now there's deep, deep troubling in his spirit. So you're emotional. God made you that way. Jesus is emotional. So when we have those emotionally turbulent moments in life, how do we keep moving forward in such a way that we're become the kind of people God wants us to be, or sometimes those things, my experience, sometimes those things kind of paralyze us and we get stuck. And the joy and the peace that Jesus talks about, he came to give us, seems like it's from here to Indianapolis, that far away. Like, I, I, I don't know, I don't, I'm just trying to make it through the day. Now, let me go through a couple of the things that's interesting. Go to the next slide. In the Gospel of John, it's inter- you know, John wrote this. John was an eyewitness of this. This isn't the only time we're told Jesus is deeply troubled. All right? Uh, probably a few weeks before this event, because this was on a Thursday night. It was probably the week before. We don't exactly sure where, what day. Um, his good friend Lazarus died. Remember, he was friends with Mary and Martha. Lazarus was a friend he knew for a long time, and he died Jesus gets there after Lazarus had died. Jesus sees all the people weeping and, and sad. I mean, if you, if you had a loved one die, you, you, you know what Jesus was experiencing. And, and John says that a deep anger welled up within Jesus. And he was, here's the words again, deeply troubled. Not like deeply troubled like we talk about somebody in an insane asylum, but he was emotionally <laughs> Something was going on that was rocking him, all right? So that was just kind of a week before. Now, next slide. The, this is the week of. So this is Thursday night where Jesus was deeply troubled, but we don't know. Maybe it was Monday or Tuesday. Jesus is talking to the disciples in Jerusalem for the, for the Feast of Passover. They're, they are uh, begin the celebration and things like that. And Jesus starts telling his disciples, you know, I... He basically tried to help them understand, I'm going to die soon. And they don't get it. They're still kind of clueless. But Jesus says about himself, now my soul is deeply troubled. And then he basically says, should I ask God to release me, rescue me from this hour? No, this is what I came to do. I came to give my life. But Jesus says, my soul is deeply troubled. So John's, who's recording this and is around Jesus for these couple-week period, John's noticing, and he's probably noticing, not only Jesus said it here, but when he says he's deeply troubled, you could probably tell in Jesus' physical being that he was just 
I mean, you've seen people who are deeply troubled in emotional hurricane kind of ways, and they just kind of, they look exhausted. And that was Jesus, Son of God. Now my soul is deeply troubled. All right, next one. This is then, this is, this is from Mark's gospel. This is then later on that same Thursday night. This is what Mark records happened. And Mark says this, Jesus, this is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is realizing, you know what? What's about to happen is going to really rock my world. I'm, I came for this. I'm not a victim. Jesus wasn't a victim. He wasn't a passive victim. He knew exactly what he was walking into. And Mark says, Jesus became deeply troubled and distressed. And he told the disciples, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Now, just think about that. What, what would it feel like for your soul to be crushed with grief? And some of you have been there in some really traumatic ways. But yeah, close your eyes just for a second. Think about what that would feel like in your body when something's going on and anxiety and fear and unknown and deep sadness is all mixing together. What happens in your body? Just your stomach gets kind of knotty, your back gets tense, your emotions just go white. All right? Okay, back up here. So this two-week period, it seems like Jesus is deeply troubled quite a bit. And he's feeling this emotional kind of savage havoc in his spirit about what's going on. Now, let's go to the next one here. One more. What do we make of this? Okay, we're told all over the place Jesus is deeply troubled. Then he turns to his disciples and to us and says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Wait a minute. Jesus, why can you be troubled but not us? Don't let your, I mean, is Jesus saying, stop it? And then later on in John 14, this is the same night. This is the same night. He's, uh, he's telling the disciples, hey, here's what's coming down the pike. Here's the kind of suffering that's going to, you're going to endure, that's going to make you better men and better, more like me, Jesus said. And he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. And then later on in the same little talk, don't be troubled or afraid. So is, is Jesus kind of taking on a Bob Newhart lesson here? Just, you know, when, when things go bad, because they, they didn't know what was coming. They didn't know Jesus was going to get arrested a few hours later. They didn't know they were going to watch Jesus get savagely beaten and tortured and then killed. And Jesus is saying to them, don't be troubled. Come on, Jesus, you kidding me? Don't be troubled? I mean, is it that easy? But if we kind of think about it a little more clearly, Jesus isn't saying that feeling deeply troubled is like sin. What he's saying here is, don't let yourself be so deeply troubled that you decide you're going to live there. In the John 14, one passage, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled, trust in God, trust also in me. That's where he begins to say, but in my Father's house are many rooms, many mansions. If that were not so, I would have told you so. I'm going to go prepare a place for you that, that way you and I can dwell together. He says, don't, don't let your home rest in your deeply troubledness. Rest yourself in your friendship with me. 
don't let yourself rest in the deep, deeply troubledness. And some of you might think, well, wait a minute, it's been like, you know, three weeks or three days or some of you three years where I wake up mostly at least every night, maybe once every other night, and, 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 I'm, and I can't shake deeply troubledness. Am I sinning? I said, no, no. You're not, unless you've resigned yourself to the fact that that's the way life's supposed to be, and that's what God's supposed to do. And God's supposed to just kind of, you know, you're deeply troubled, and that's all I'm going to be in life. That, if that defines who you are, then Jesus would gently and but firmly challenge you Take the next step. You don't need to live there. So, you know, John's obviously remembering all this, that Jesus was deeply troubled, but he's also telling them, you know, you will be troubled. The fact that you're a follower of Jesus does not mean Jesus is going in front of you eliminating obstacles. If you're following Jesus, you think he's going to eliminate all the financial obstacles, relational obstacles, and health obstacles in your life, and you're following the wrong Jesus. Jesus never promised that he would eliminate any problems in life. And if you follow Jesus, you're signing up for some kind of carefree life. What he promised was, you will have these obstacles and you will have troubles and you will have trials and challenges, but I'm going to be with you. And I know exactly what it feels like to be deeply troubled. And I can help you not live in that place, even though the problems may not go away. And the loved one may not be brought back to life. The cancer still may take that life. Your spouse may still want to divorce you. Your child may still hate you. Your bank account may still be empty. But I'm going to walk with you through that. And I'm not going to walk with you in some kind of a hallmark moment kind of cuddly way. I'm going to walk with that, with you in that and give you the kind of strength that I had to have when I was going through Gethsemane. And when I was going through the cross. Because even at that moment, even though Jesus was being traumatized, I would say he was the most peaceful being in the universe during those few days. Incredible peace. Not comfort, but peace because he knew, he knew his identity, he knew his home, and he knew his father's love for him. And he knew that nothing, absolutely nothing, would remove him from the love of the Father. Here's the question for the day. What do you do when you feel deeply troubled? I'm going to ask this two ways. First question way is, what do you do when you feel deeply troubled? Do you go out and jog because it makes you get your mind off of it? Do you flip on the TV to find another story that's easier to get a part of because your story's too painful? When you feel deeply troubled, do you resort to trying to control the rest of your life because you've got to control to make sure no other trouble happens in your life so you get to become a control freak? Do you turn to some kind of addiction because that anesthetizes the troubled pain in your soul? I hate how I'm feeling. I don't like this emotional hurricane turmoil. And boy, that really looks good. If I could have some of that, it might make it all go away for a time, and I just need a break. Surely God can understand that. You know, the alcohol, the drugs, the television, the pornography, whatever it is that you use to kind of deaden your soul, we run to those things. So that's the question. What do you do?
You know, if you wake up in the middle of the night and that troubledness kind of overwhelms you, what do you do? Get a glass of milk? Hopefully that helps. What do you do? I mean, that's kind of the question I wrestled with. I was to my wife and I were talking about this just yesterday about an issue. I was like, what, what do you do? I mean, do you just stop it? I mean, you just need to get on Bob Newhart and watch the little video. Oh, yeah, I just need to stop worrying. Okay, I can go back to bed now. It's not that easy. You know, so what do you do when you feel deeply troubled? But the same question worded a different way or phrased a different way. What do you do when you feel deeply troubled? What are you supposed to do? What would Jesus have you to do? What does a good Christian person do? Because Jesus said, don't be troubled, trust in me. And he said, don't be troubled because I'm going to give you peace that the world could never give you in the midst of those circumstances. And, okay, I know that's true. I can lay awake in my bed at night and think, okay, I just need to trust God, but I don't fall asleep right away. I can think, okay, I need the peace of God, but I don't fall asleep right away. I know those things, but I think the... The next step beyond that that's challenging for me and for all of us is inviting and welcoming God to bring that kind of peace to my heart because I don't know how that's going to happen. I'm not in control anymore. Think about this. When Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, he has, he's deeply troubled. His soul's overwhelmed to the point of death. How did Jesus deal with a deeply troubledness? Two things interesting in the Garden of Gethsemane. One... He told the disciples, hey, will you, will you guys stay up and keep watch with me? He realized, even though he was the son of God, he needed people. He needed a relationship. It doesn't make his problems go away, but if your way of handling deeply troubling situations is to isolate yourself relationally, um, that's not how God designed us to get whole. But the second thing, in his prayer in the garden that night, when he was deeply troubled, overwhelmed to the point of death, and he says to God the Father, he says, God, I know you can do all things. All right, that's line one of his prayer. You can do anything you want to, God. Line two, take this cup from me. And what he meant was, can you remove this thing I'm seeing in front of me that is causing me deep emotional trauma? the cross, crucifixion, right? Can you do that? I mean, Jesus was absolutely, completely human at that moment. At the same time, he was God. He was saying, is there a plan B? There's a plan B for you to save the world. I'm open to it. So he stated his desire openly and was honest about the deeply troubledness. He didn't say, God, I'm really happy right now, and I'm really joyful in what you're doing in my life. He, he, God, I'm deeply troubled. I'm like almost dying inside. So, God, you can do all things. Part one of his prayer. Part two of his prayer, is there another way? And then the third part of his prayer, which is the hardest thing for me, hardest thing for you, and was absolutely hard for Jesus, I'm sure. He said, but nevertheless, Father, I want your will, not my will. However you want me to walk through this, I will do it your way, God, not my way. I'm letting go of control. I'm, I'm doing this intentionally with my hands. I'm letting go of control. I'm letting go. So if I'm saying, God, I want to trust you more with this thing in my life that's causing me anxiety in various degrees, 
and I, and I want the peace. God, you said there's peace for the, the world doesn't give, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not getting it, but I want it. So God, you, you show me how to get that peace. And like Jesus said, and kind of like, and no holds barred, God. It's your way unconditionally, not my way. That's the hard part of our prayers. Okay, God, your way, unconditionally your way to peace and trust, not my way. You can do anything you want to, God. Can you remove this emotionally traumatizing situation from my life? But even if you don't, unconditionally, God, I trust you will lead me to peace. Unconditionally, you will lead me to peace. You will show me how to be that kind of man with strength and courage and perseverance in the midst of this situation where I have no idea what to do. You will show me how to be that woman of strength and clarity and beauty and courage in the midst of a situation where I have no idea what to do. I can't change that situation and the turmoil in my soul threatens to bubble up all the time. But God, whatever you want me to do, all right? Last thing is this. We'll go to this last slide. And this is kind of leads us into communion. Hebrews chapter 4, later on in the New Testament, the writer of the Hebrews is talking about kind of the supremacy of Jesus. And, and this is absolutely beautiful. This high priest, Jesus, of ours understands our weaknesses. There's no turmoil you feel emotionally, physically that Jesus hasn't already been there. And he's not going to condemn you for it. He will not pull a Bob Newhart on you. Stop it. He will not. So in those moments, Jesus wants to be with you. Sometimes we have to invite him to be with us in those moments of trauma and pain. For he faced all the same testings we do. He didn't sin, yet he didn't give in to control or addictions or other things like that that we'd like to do. And then he says, so let us come boldly to the throne of the gracious God, because that's where we're going to receive mercy. That's where we're going to receive the peace and the trust that we want in life, to be the kind of strong people we want to be, full of the life of God, and we'll find grace to help us when we need it most. You see, sometimes it's, uh, and I'll speak to men here, sometimes for those of us who are men, um, being needy is hard for us. Being emotional is questionable for us. And we think, oh, I don't, you know. But, you know, you look through the Bible. Uh, King David. I mean, King David, great leader, great warrior, great, uh, great lover. But yet he, over and over the Psalms, I'm overwhelmed. I'm, my, my heart is crushed. I mean, he's just, so it's not like some emotional spirituality that you have to become a soft man to buy into this. It's the essence of strength. It's the essence of strength because you, if anybody wants to tell me that Jesus was soft or King David was soft, I challenge you to read the Bible stories all over again because those were two men that were absolutely strong. No one is stronger than the man Jesus. No one. No one had more emotional strength and energy and courage and perseverance. No one. So... If you're a man here, we should all aspire to be men like Jesus, who understood my emotions are not my enemy, but neither will they control me, because I'm going to find my rest in the strength of what Jesus offers me. Um, and I can go boldly and say, Jesus, I need this. I, I feel totally inadequate. I feel totally in emotional turmoil. 
but I need you right now. Um, that's why we have communion every Sunday at Exodus. It's not because we're just trying to check off the list of, you know, uh, spiritual rituals accomplished this week to make sure we earn a few extra points with God. This is a statement of, I, I need this. I, I, Jesus, I need you in me because there is no one who I could be more like than you that would help me be kind of the kind of man or woman I want to be. So when Jesus said that same night, just doing remembrance of me, he said, eat this, it's my body, drink this, it represents in a symbolically mystical way my blood. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're going to do it. You're going to remember my death. You're going to remember me and all the things I said you could become if you followed me and trusted me and opened your hands to me. So that's why we do this. And some of you, uh, myself included, really need to be reminded of that because of some emotional hurricanes that are going on inside of you. And you just need to be reminded, you know what? It's okay to be really, really needy if your really, really neediness is targeted toward Jesus. If it's targeted toward other things, addictions, television, or relationships, then it's going to kill you. But if your neediness is expressed to the strongest person who ever lived, Jesus, who was also sent from God, you're going to find wholeness and healing there. Here's how we do it at Exodus. Uh, Jeremy's going to lead us in a few more songs. At the same time, there'll be people at the uh, three aisles. They're going to offer you bread, tear off a piece, offer you the cup, just dip it in. Don't try to drink out of it. Just dip it in. Um, Anyone is welcome who's willing to acknowledge their neediness for Jesus. Perfection is not the standard. Having your A-plus week is not the standard. The standard is a hunger for and an acknowledgement to that this is the only way. The way of Jesus is the only way you'll be the kind of person that you believe God made you to be. All right? And that you're willing to forsake everything else unconditionally. All right? Let me pray and then we'll take. Jesus, thank you that you showed us the way through some really turbulent, how to, live, how to live really well in a turbulent kind of situation. And you showed us that because that's the way you show us how to live. And you showed us how to have full life, a life full of the energy, love, and goodness that come from you, God, that we can pour that into others. We want to be those kind of people. We want to bring the goodness of God to others. And we want to be the kind of people who allow you to shape us uh, through the sufferings we, you put in front of us. And we're glad, God, uh, that you're a good God. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.